Every facet of the fashion industry, including designer labels, is changing. In this series, we ask those on the front lines to speak candidly about the future of fashion. I'm Hilary Milnes, and this is The Future of Fashion by Vogue Business. The Future of Fashion by Vogue Business is brought to you in association with Klarna, the leading global payments and shopping service that lets shoppers buy now and pay later. Visit Klarna.com to find out how you can increase your average order value, drive traffic, and create a smooth checkout experience by adding a buy now, pay later option to your website. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Future of Fashion by Vogue Business. I'm your host, Hilary Milnes. Sustainability is going to be fashion's top priority headed into the next decade, but what that means varies by brand. More urgency is essential, activists argue, and the pandemic might have provided a proper reset for brands to bring sustainability to the forefront. Gabriella Hurst, designer of her namesake label and winner of the 2020 CFDA Award for American Women's Wear Designer of the Year, joins us today to talk about the next chapter of sustainable designer fashion. Thanks so much, Gabriella, for being here. Uh, thank you, Hilary, for having me. Of course. So I'd love to, let's start by discussing that, in fact. Um, what does it mean in 2020 for a designer to win a CFD, CFDA award? It's been such a strange year and challenging year that a year where we worked harder than ever. And so when you win an award uh, as the CFDA, it's a great fuel and encouragement for the team because we really did not paralyzed during COVID. We start to pivot the things we could pivot and we really thought a strategy that was aligned with a long-term strategy. So we worked really hard and this award was a great push to have, especially before our show in Paris. That was our first show in Paris. Yeah, you mentioned the pivot earlier in the year in response to the pandemic. Can you walk us through that? Uh, Of course, I'm sure, you know, not being paralyzed by it, not being stopped in your tracks was really important. How did you decide how to respond and uh, what were the steps that you took? I come from a ranching family where we've been doing the same business for 170 years and in Uruguay, right? Before that, they were doing it in the south of Brazil. And and we've gone through different crises. It's about not panicking. It's about looking at the opportunities and that how I was trained. And also I've had situations growing up in a ranch where things become dangerous, right? Like, for example, if you're riding horses and the horse as a little kid and the horse take off and it takes off at a speed and you have to decide what to do, right? If you're going to go with the flow of the horse or you're going to panic and fall and uh, probably hurt yourself really badly. So I think the training I've had with those kind of dangerous situations also made me more calm, but if calm is the right word, or more aware that there is next to the crisis, there's an opportunity to to move forward and, and go with the flow without bending who you are as well. So the ways we practically pivot, I immediately said, let's not do things we would never do, right? Like, for example, I don't know, post a picture of me in a bikini, right? <laughs> On Instagram to get more likes. That is not part of the long-term view. But there were things that were pretty evident were that we had to be stronger in. And that was our digital presence. We are very much a, a physical brand where we 
spend so much time looking at the most impressive materials and raw materials and translating it to touch and feel and the craftsmanship of our product. So that's a challenge when you're not a logo-driven brand, right, in the digital space. And but when I was looking at our e-commerce, that was our window to the world in that moment, I was like, okay, we, need, we have a lot of work to do. And so immediately we hired a, a head manager for our e-commerce before we were doing it very entrepreneur and, and lean, which is not bad. It's, it's, it's where we had chosen to do our focus because our stores were doing pretty well before COVID. And so that was one of the pivots. And another one of the pivots, and, and I am going to give credit to my sales team, when we did resort, we, we decided very quickly that we were going to make resort because we had pre-purchased all the fabrics that were dead stock because I use and work with a lot of repurpose and um, fabrics. And I, we spend a lot of time basically hunting and gathering these fabrics. We've traveled to France, we've looked at fabrics, we've, we've made choices, we had paid for them. So and we didn't want to lose the revenue for this year. So we took on the challenge to do a collection that was uh, done in confinement. We've done three through COVID, but that was the first one in confinement with Italy shut down. And so we did it and we were proud of the, of the collection. But then when we had to put in the budget, how much do we think wholesale was going to sell of the collection? And wholesale represents 50% of our business. We put 50% less than last year because we just didn't know how it was going to work out. But our sales team was so good. It felt like it, they were in a luxury version of a QVC show. You know, my head of sales was glammed up. We made all these different swatch books for all our retail partners to, to touch the materials. And sales were equal to, to, to the resort of 2019. So that was really happy news and encouraging that we were able to, to sustain the business on that side. And so... That was one of the quick pivots of learning how to do markets remotely. And they've done three markets already and successfully. Um, spring was actually up from last spring. So that was definitely a quick pivot that I won't take credit because it was my sales team that was really, really easy, really marched in very fast at it. Yeah, so it definitely sounds like a pivot on several different fronts. And so the business is, it sounds like, in a slightly different position than it was um, at the start of the pandemic. And so you said you had just shown in Paris. So why, you know, go from New York to to Paris on the on the global, you know, scale? How did that decision influence where the brand was, um, you know, during all of this? And uh, where do you see that headed in terms of, okay, where, where the brand shows and even the role of the fashion show in general? So... We took as we, the strategy for the pandemic was to put goals and go for them. And then if things changed, we adapted to those changes. And the decision to show in Paris became evident when for many, you know, you never do one thing because of one reason. It's always many reasons. And so we had, when we finished the resort collection, we had nearly one third of our collection lost because it would come from Italy and, and because there's less commercial flights, hence less freight flights. And so the samples 
it was we recuperate two of the boxes and one we lost. And so I didn't, I've never had in 17 years of, of working in fashion, a moment where I looked at a collection and be like, I don't think we have a collection here. And we had a shoot planned. And so I remember that moment where it's like, okay, take notes. We may have to adapt to this coming up, you know, the next season. And so we thought Paris being closer to all our suppliers Paris. Also, we wanted to measure the carbon footprint if it would have a uh, less of an impact if we showed in Paris than we show in New York. As you know, we, we measured our carbon footprints of our shows. And so we wanted to have that statistic as well. And so that was one of the reasons. And at the same time, the more emotional reason was that it was Paris. And this, as again, will give the team a push in order to wish for something uh, because you still want a live audience. And it wasn't clear that we could do that in New York. And so we went to Paris with very little expectations, right? We knew we wanted to, we were very proud of the collection for spring 21. Uh, we put a lot of our heart. We did not let the pandemic stop our creative development. And, and it was a success in many, many fronts. And so it was one of those things where we didn't expect so much, so much uh, positive to come. And I think that our hard work was really graced with some good luck at that moment because it was very, um, it was a very emotional show. And everybody that seemed to have watched it uh, digitally felt the same emotion. And that's something hard to transmit. Yeah, and I, I think that's a that has been a big decision and uh, just path a lot, a lot of designers have had to figure out this year is how do you recreate a live show online? How do you meet all of the same um, you know global buyers that you would be able to see during a normal fashion week with this new normal? And so, do you see that the the changes that have had to been, be made to showing a new collection, um, whether that is doing a show both online and in person, showing um, you know collections to buyers digitally, do you see this sticking around? What changes um, do you expect to actually you know make an, a long long term impact on how fashion operates versus being more reactionary? Well, I think evidently is the the online push right. Also, I do think that there are short-term changes and the pendulum will readjust itself. But I think that after COVID, it will be very challenging years for, for many segments of our society. So I think that there's going to be more of a responsibility in companies and brands to be there with a purpose, right? To be there with a commitment. I think that... We tried our young brand to, from the start to, to do a company that is trying to do business that is more in balance with, with nature and the environment and also that it's socially conscious. And I think that those are two main factors that, that are, came very much to a priority during COVID. I think that having a purpose driven company and a purpose-driven product or part of my English, you don't have to bullshit, right? I, I think still feel that we connect with our clients through our product. We've never had a marketing budget or anything that would be considered significant in today's world. So we've always have to drive with our product and telling 
the truth about what we do. And I think those things seem to be relevant right now. Absolutely. And and you so how do you as a brand that has, you know, been operating more sustainably than than many other fashion brands can say for a long time preceding the pandemic, how do you communicate that to customers in a way that says, um, listen, you know, we're not just toting out this purpose value driven line uh, to appeal to, to what customers are saying that they want. This is actually part of the brand. And, you know, how do you how do you define sustainability in fashion going forward? Well, so much has changed since we started, and I'm so happy about these changes. When we did our first show in 2017 with dead stock fabrics, that was that was a real issue for a male that got offended that I used the word dead stock, and now the males send me their dead stock, and it's become a common thing. And that's just only three years ago in the luxury space, right? And I welcome those changes because I think that if more designers were going to be moving towards a circular economy and a repurpose and really paying attention to our raw materials, you can put a lot of repurposed things together and it can look like a hot mess. But that's where taste and point of view can shine through and your your storytelling on the design perspective. So I think that I find that while it could look like a more limiting scenario moving to a circular economy, it's actually going to expand your creativity into a more laser-focused strength. I, you know, I'm a believer that not everything that new is better than, than, than old. I, I think that uh, recycling and repurpose is really what's driving me today. There's two categories in our business that if we would pay attention to, we could really... And we are going to have to pay attention, especially as regulations are going to start to be stringent when it comes to the, the carbon dioxide emissions. And so I think if we pay attention to our raw materials and our and the our carbon footprint, we're covering basically the, the transportation. So raw materials and transportation, transportation, you're covering around 50% of the carbon dioxide emissions that uh, a fashion company has. As someone active in this space, who's also you know, part of the fashion industry and an observer, where do you see sustainability in fashion accelerating to next year in the next 10 years? You know, there's so much talk around it. And you mentioned circularity, this idea pulling away from newness. Um, these are hard habits for fashion to, for you know, first break the bad habits and then establish new ones. You know, where do you even begin? How do you, how do you see this actually playing out? And, and do you see progress heading in the right direction? Well, you know, one of the silver linings of COVID, if we can actually call it a silver lining, that it's in parallel to the environmental crisis, is that we, all the experts in the field agree that we have all the tools that we need to to resolve the climate crisis, which is the crisis that's going to really extinct us. COVID will not extinct us as a species. But the question is, can we change fast enough? And one of the things that we've seen with COVID is that we can change our habits fast enough. So I do believe that we can adapt ourselves to the change that's needed as long as our brains understand the circumstances that we're confronting. We're confronting the extinction of our species. So I think that it will become more and more and more and more. This is not a trend. This is not something that's going to go away. This is this is an issue. This is a crisis. And we see 
the effects of this crisis in different ways, in, 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 in social political uh, situations, in, in migration. There is 85 million people displaced uh, in the world right now. Half of them are children. Some of them, of course, are because of wars and conflicts, but a lot of it is because of environmental crises. So I think that, and that number is going to go up to maybe 125 just in three years. So that notion that half of these are children and these are our children and this is our world. And, and the more we move towards realizing that we are interconnected, what is happening in the drought in Africa or the fires in Malibu, it's not just happening to them, it's happening to all of us. So what I'm trying to say is I think that we'll put, this crisis will push us to evolve as a species. I have to be hopeful of that thought. I do believe that we will be able to bring ourselves from the brink. Mm. That was actually going to be my next question is in, in the face of, of you know such an impending crisis, how do you stay optimistic and hopeful specifically about about fashion and, and the future of an industry that has been you know known for for such waste? You know it's uh, I've thought about this a lot and I think that there's some it's like why do I see this so clearly right and it's so hard sometimes for others to see and I think it has to do with how much fear can your brain take, right? I am not someone that gets paralyzed by fear, but that's just how my brain is, is wired. It doesn't make me a better person. It's just how my brain is functioning. And some people, there's a tolerance of how much information and fear kind of brain take, right? And so if you really look at the whole problem, it gets you, can get you very challenged. So the solutions are here. It's about us bringing awareness to the solutions and taking action. So I keep myself hopeful because I have to, and I also don't want my kids to think that I stayed in the sidelines. And also we have going to have in America a president that has a priority to address the climate crisis before just uh, before November, there was a party that did not rec- recognize the climate issue as a reality, publicly speaking. Right, right. And on that note, it's something that has come up in our um, sustainability coverage is, you know, brands and, and fashion companies, fashion houses, it's very common now for them to have sustainability strategies and be setting their own goals. But where do you see policy playing playing a part here in terms of actually, you know, defining what needs to be done and the responsibilities of, of companies to hit certain goals faster. Um, you know, it seems like it's a common, a common pattern for yeah, brands to set goals they know they can meet. I love this question because I've had this, I've talked with, with other people about it. Um, because if you compare our industry to the food industry, you have to be certified organic, right? You have to have a certification, and an agency has to certify you. Uh, we, for example, we are grass-fed certified organic cattle uh, growers in, in Uruguay. And we've always done it. But when the certification came out, my father had the insight to, to do it. And so there's not that certifications in our industry in that, in that level. And I want that policy to, to happen. But other people have told me, be careful with wanting so much policy because it can also restrict your innovation. So I think that that's where uh, I do think that there's a need for policy in order to bring clarity to the consumer. 
And do you, do you do you agree with that? That policy could prohibit innovation on on the brand side. I mean, I see that point. I can see that point, right? But I am more skeptical about because right now we're all conducting ourselves with the unless you're a B Corp, right? That there is some parameters and it's not an easy task to become a B Corp. But there is you're basically using your moral compass to regulate yourself. And I believe that it's quite difficult to be objective with yourself if you're not checking your, you're checking yourself uh, constantly, which I tried to do with t- talking to different scientists, environmental journalists, authors, you know, bringing the asking questions, addressing, going back to the to the plan, revisiting it. I, I, I don't think that anyone is doing it perfect. I don't think I'm doing it perfect. And so I do think that we need to evolve in, in a way that it's like, okay, we all agree that scientifically, this is what we need to address, right? Lower our carbon footprint, lower our emissions. How do we do that? You know, as I said, the two main focus for me right now is transportation and uh, raw materials. And uh, what about the idea of, of just producing less in, in general? I, I'm interested to hear how all of this um, affects your creative process if, you know, with the use of dead stock, is there, if there's something that you'd like to create but can't do it sustainably, um, you know, how do you make sure that everything that you are putting out there is within, you know, responsibility? I, I just had this, I like this question a lot because I, I feel that I, for the past years, I've been trying to basically do the opposite of what we prep a control growth and for example, our handbag business, we've never wholesaled it. We've controlled its distribution very, very, very tight. So I felt for all these years, I've been fighting not to sell, <laughs> to have these, these uh, which is like counterintuitive, right? But it didn't fit in our long-term view strategy and it didn't fit in our sustainability values because you basically have to make double the amount of product to make the same amount of money when you wholesale. And I don't think that that's a healthy recipe for for the environment nor our business. So I've been very focused on making sure that we had opportunities to, to really you know, push the growth, but we didn't take them. And when COVID hit, I was so happy that we didn't have 100 employees, right? To just give you a number, that we were just 40 in the whole team, right? We can take care of 40, right? We, we adjust and we, we take care of each other. So I think there is a, and that again, from the family business, there is a, a great concept about growing slow because you can grow strong, right? And so there was not too much fat to skim with us. We, we had the partners we were not over-distributed wholesale-wise, so we had those 75 uh, doors that are our same doors and we're loyal to them and they're loyal to us. So instead of having 300 doors or 200 doors, maybe a, a brand of our awareness should have, but we just believe in, in this paced way of growing as we figure it out how to create a product with the lowest impact to the environment and highest quality. So you can't grow luxury fast. And I'm in the luxury business. Mm-hmm. 
So I think it, it seems for a while brands and brand founders had aspirations about being the next billion dollar brand, uh, raising a lot of capital to to drive that growth. Opening, yeah, that's not me. Yeah, right. Do you think? Do, do you see these two, um, you know, simultaneous factors of the pandemic and uh, the climate crisis changing the way that that companies set out to build their businesses, um, especially when you look at the rising class of designers who had these aspirations and are now figuring out, okay, I need to make a better case for for why my business um, deserves to exist and how it can succeed. And almost changing this idea of of growth and and what's expected of fashion brands. I've never had uh, that aspiration for us. I never even thought of us being a billion dollar brand, I don't even think we're going to be, nor I'm really attracted to that concept. I'd rather be a brand that holds a healthy profit at the end of the year. So that big number, revenue number, it's sometimes kind of not a part of the problem that we're today, right? It's pushing that revenue number, but you don't have no profits. So I want us to be cash positive. I want us to be healthy and build something that all fashion business, right? You have cash. <laughs> That's really what I want to build. Right. And so what advice would you have for for a young emerging designer um, looking to build a business that I, all this in mind? Yeah. Yeah. You know, every single designer that I've met that is, you know, just starting, they all, they're all sustainable. The young, young generation, they are 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 thinking way ahead of us and maybe they don't have the resources yet but they will get there but there's I've not met a young designer that's launching a brand that doesn't have a sustainable basis because they know that this is the world that they're going to inherit they're very aware of it so no one should be in business right now without having environmental practices put in place or at least what they can start doing and in order to learn that's basic. I don't, I think the debate time is over on that. So again, I, sometimes I have these mentorships hours with the, some designers and young designers of all over the world. And every time I do one of those, I feel like I was supposed to be mentoring them, but I've learned so much from their perspective and their view. Right. Mm. So I don't know if I have things to to say or listen or or give help when they need it. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, I think yeah, a lot of a lot has been said about this generation really pushing forward just yeah. that that sustainability front, which is which is great. Um, and uh, with with all of this in mind too, um, in terms of how you operate your your business, you've mentioned you know there's it's not about being being the biggest. Um, and just correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong anywhere, but um, so Gabriella Hurst is independent, um, but LVMH in, invested in the company mm-hmm. in 2019. Um, do you see being yeah. an independent company the way forward to make maintain that, that style of growth? I know um, we're seeing a lot of consolidation around the luxury industry in general. We, LVMH, it's our strategic investment uh, partners and they've been incredible. And I'm not just saying that they, they have been, they helped us navigate a pandemic. We had no, what LVMH and their support has given us is an opportunity to not sell out, an opportunity to maintain our principles and our values as we grow. And what they give us is this extra experience, right? If we open a store in London, they would help us recruit a team. We don't have an HR department. So it's access to a bigger 
infrastructure and it still give us autonomy and independence, but we have access to, to be able to learn from them and ha- have the support, which sometimes is much more beneficial than just financial help. So that's why having them as a partner has been a great thing for our brand, uh, just because we're able to be ourselves without having to, to take wrong decisions, wrong collaborations, etc. Right. And, uh, you know, in, in terms of where you want the brand to be in the next five years, um, you know, is it a matter of setting sustainability goals as opposed to, um, you know, big major growth goals? How do you, where do you want to be in the next, in the next five years? The sustainable part of our business is the heart of our business. So if we don't continue evolving uh, in that and pushing the barriers and the efforts in ourselves, because there's always, there's always ways to do it better. I think we die as a business. So it's as vital as that. It's like the heart. And if we are not, if we, we become complacent in that, I think that it's just not uh, going to go. So the idea is to always grow and learn and, and have concrete goals and improve yourself. From the business perspective, I've been very focused and challenged into opening a retail uh, store in because I don't see us having many stores in the world. I see maximum seven, our own standing stores, at least in, in my lifetime. I think we just have to be in these key cities. Right now we're in New York and in London. And before the pandemic, we wanted to be in Beijing. After the pandemic, we want to be in Beijing. So hopefully uh, we're going to be able to open a store in Beijing. And by uh, five years from now, we have opened other stores, but not many. I'm talking maybe maximum three uh, in five years and maybe two in key cities where we find that Gorilla Hearst woman connects with, with what we do. And uh, she's quite easily defined and easily to appeal to for us because we, we know what the language that uh, we're communicating in. And I also uh, hope that our digital, because what happened as the issue with everybody, our website uh, revenue grew incredibly this year, but not enough to uh, balance out the losses from the retail space. So hopefully our e-commerce is thriving. And overall, as a company, we are a cash positive profit making company which is more important than the bigger number. Right. And and yeah, I think to your point, it's it's looking back at the year where the business is now versus where it might have been earlier. There are definitely, you know, some silver linings to look at, opportunities ahead for for luxury brands that were kind of forced to to make faster pivots than they might have otherwise. Um yeah. and we're we're just about out of time, but I would love to get your thoughts before you go on if you are a customer who who wants to shop more sustainably, where do you begin? How do you look for that? Because I think you know, a lot of the question that comes up is how do you consume Consume in a in a positive way mm-hmm. within the the ecosystem and the in the structure that we have. I, I think it's a very uh, you want to buy something that you want to have for the rest of your life. You know you don't you want to consume something that you're completely passionate about how it's made or built or the design talks to you. And I mean I can tell you how I consume and it's I I always go for for quality and, and not quantity and and I rather have very few special things 
than many occupying space. So I think that it's about going for quality. And I can tell you that we see more and more a rise on questionings of how, from our customers, of how things are made, how things are sourced. So I think that that is becoming very important. Before, I think people would buy us for our design and, and, and the product itself and not necessarily how we were being sourced or how we were making the choices to make and the homework we were doing to make this product better for the client as a human and better for the environment. And now I think that is becoming a priority. So I would say re- do your research and make sure that you are buying something that you want to have for the rest of your life. Thank you so much, Gabriela, for being here. It was great speaking to you. Thank you so much. This has been The Future of Fashion by Vogue Business. Thank you for listening. If you missed any episodes from this series, they can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Vogue Business website. For more coverage on the future of fashion, subscribe to the Vogue Business newsletter at voguebusiness.com. Our executive producer was Alan John. My name is Hilary Milnes. That was the future of fashion. Thank you for listening. The Future of Fashion by Vogue Business is brought to you in association with Klarna, the leading global payments and shopping service that lets shoppers buy now and pay later. Visit Klarna.com to find out how you can increase your average order value, drive traffic, and create a smooth checkout experience by adding a buy now, pay later option to your website.